Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Of course, that made the cat. <laughs> the like the chorus of <laughs> yowls. <laughs> Ding the bell. I mean, can the cats be our new summary sound? Because I would love that. If only I could, like, squeeze him to get him to meow on cue. <laughs> I, like, if I could get him to do it on cue, that'd be He's only got to do it once. That's true. Can it. I just, yeah, I got to follow him around with my microphone. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Tell me about it, Rafe. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show, or should we say the Hurly Burly Marlowe Show this week? Yeah. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet, and this week we are talking about Christopher Marlowe's The Jew of Malta. Ooh, I am Barabbas, the Jew of Malta. That's my Ben Affleck impression. Did you get it? I didn't know. <laughs> From Shakespeare in Love? Ugh, I'll work on it. The documentary Shakespeare in Love. Yes. <laughs> the historical documentary. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this show and come back for more. Most weeks we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Robert Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 level. Yeah, but you know, sometimes... Like this week, it's not Shakespeare. But even then, you know, you'll still get all the necessary introductory stuff, which is everything that you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes, and some other cool stuff that you will get nowhere else, like our thoughts and feelings. Yeah. So. And this play gives us some feelings. Yeah. All right. So it's time for our rhetorical device of the week. Yeah. Uh, because we are word nerds each week we draw a random device from our handy dandy american shakespeare center rhetorical device flashcards yeah for actors and scholars knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize the patterns in shakespeare's or marlowe's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and the way it's being said and the way the words are arranged to help us understand characters through their speech tactics Draw a card, Rigatoni. All right, you draw a card, my little macaroni. Here we go. Stop. Ooh, this one is both a rhetorical device and a thing you learn about in biology class. It is meiosis. Um, I think you're thinking of mitosis. No, there's mitosis and meiosis in biology. It's two different things. It's like two di cellular functions. Okay. There's definitely cellular uh, meiosis. Okay. <laughs> okay, sure. meiosis. M-E-I-O-S-I-S, -I -I meiosis. And it means deliberate understatement by referring to something with a name disproportionately lesser than its nature. Example being, Romeo says, what, art thou hurt? And Mercutio answers, I, I, a scratch, a scratch. So calling his deep gut gash from which he dies a scratch is meiosis. So for the people, again, meiosis is deliberate understatement by referring to something with a name disproportionately lesser than its nature. Like uh, in Macbeth, when they talk about all the omens and shit happening the night Duncan is murdered and somebody goes, "'Twas a rough night." Like rough doesn't even begin to describe what that night was right meiosis it's meiosis meiosis is a specialized type of cell division that reduces the chromosome number by half creating four haploid cells each genetically distinct from the parent cell that gave rise to them meiosis oh, yeah. see yeah <laughs> hurly burly shakespeare show you come for the shakespeare you need to stay for the science and the chromosome division <laughs> i knew it was an important thing yeah. okay never heard of it but way to go you <laughs> Hooray me! I remembered something from 10th grade. Good job, Aubrey. All right. 
So now we're going to move on to... Oh, oh, because we're talking about a contemporary of William Scranton Shakespeare. Wow. We have Meet the Contemporary. Christopher Marlowe, this is your life. Let's learn about Christopher Marlowe. Alrighty, so Christopher Marlowe called Kit by his friends. Uh, he was born in 1564, same year as Shakespeare, and he died in 1593, well before Shakespeare. He was only 29 when he died. Christopher Marlowe attended Cambridge on a scholarship normally awarded to students preparing to take holy orders, though he never entered the church. Perhaps because of this, but also perhaps not. Cambridge tried to deny him his degree on the grounds that he was planning to go abroad and join a dissident population, but the Privy Council intervened on grounds that he had, quote, done great service to the Queen and demanded that he be awarded his Master of Arts degree. Because, quote, it is not Her Majesty's pleasure that anyone employed as he has been in matters touching the benefit of his country should be defamed by those that are ignorant in the affairs that he went about. This is usually taken as evidence that Christopher Marlowe worked as a spy, uh, most probably among English Catholics who wanted to destabilize Elizabeth's Protestant regime. Ooh. I know, right? Christopher Marlowe, totes a spy. Totes. Um, so while at Cambridge and not getting his degree in holy studies uh christopher marlowe started writing plays and by the time he finished school he had already produced his smash success smash success tamburlaine and he'd probably also started uh dido queen of carthage so tamburlaine is a play in two parts and it is about a 14th century mongol warrior who rose from oblivion to conquer huge swaths of asia some 16th century accounts of tamburlaine depict him as a tool of divine instruction uh, a man sent by God to punish the earth. Tamburlaine has no divine influence in Marlowe's play, but relies instead on his ambition, intellect, cunning, and command of language. And if you have been listening to this show for a minute, a recent minute, <laughs> you know that I have strong feelings about Tamburlaine, and he is yes. the reason for our early modern dick bracket. He's a big old dick. He's a big old dick. So take it away, Aubrey. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Marlowe lived only six years after his theatrical debut. He had a remarkable career, and had he lived longer, there's no question he would have outshone Shakespeare for posterity. Um, pretty much everybody agrees on that. He was the better of the two playwrights uh, between them. He was the better poet. Marlowe was born two months before Shakespeare, and had Shakespeare died in 1593 instead of Marlowe, no one would remember him. <laughs> because uh, Shakespeare had barely done anything in 1593 um, at all. So by 1593, Shakespeare had written three epic poems and nine plays. None of them were regarded as very good. And only Richard III had some kind of name recognition among the general populace in, uh, in and around London. He would have had no Romeo and Juliet, no Hamlet, no Mackers, no Othello, no Julius Caesar, no Tempest, no Sonnets. By contrast, while only Marlowe's Faustus holds a lot of name recognition now, all of his nine plays are regarded as critically and technically superior to anything Shakespeare produced by that time, um, including the three Henry VI plays, which we discussed in an earlier episode this season, um, are written predominantly uh, by Marlowe uh, with a little bit of Shakespeare intervention yeah. um, that they kind of wrote together. So in the first part of 1593, which if you've been around for more than a minute, this, this next part is going to sound familiar to you. Playwright Thomas Kidd was a recent, who he was a recent former roommate of Christopher Marlowe's and he was arrested. Uh, and under the influence of torture, Kidd accused Marlowe of atheism and treason. At the end of May, that same year, so just a couple months later, Richard Baines submitted documents to the Privy Council using Marlowe's own words as evidence of his atheism, sedition, and homosexuality. Four days later, Marlowe was killed by a dagger through the eye in a London pub during a dispute over the bill. His Not the billing, the bill. Thank you. <laughs> Vanity. Uh, <laughs> Vanity. His company in the pub was made up of spies and double agents. This is all 
It's all public record. Uh, the brawl took place in broad daylight with dozens of witnesses, uh, except, you know, those who were arrested because of this were quietly and quickly released. No one was ever charged for any crime in connection with Christopher Marlowe's death. Hmm, right? Suspicious. Because he was a spy. And they were, like, trying to get rid of him. And also because he was gay. Um, so real quick, we've got uh, a list of a list of his plays here. With, oh, yes. So Marlowe's works, starting with Dido, Queen of Carthage, which he wrote with Thomas Nash around 1587. Mm-hmm. Then we've got Tamerlane the Great, part one, again, 1587. Tamerlane the Great, part two, 1588. The Jew of Malta, which is today's play, 1589. The first part of Henry VI's with... Billy Shakes and Tommy Nash in 1591. Also, the second part with just Billy Shakes in 1591. And the third part of Henry VI with just Billy Shakes in 1591. Yeah. Uh, 1592 gives us Dr. Faustus, which is a bomb-ass play. And Edward II came along in 1593, plus a couple of poems, and those were his last. Yeah. So uh, Marlowe's debut on the London stage also brought blank verse to England, uh, which held prominence for the next 50 years until the playhouses were closed after the English Civil War. And blank verse is just unrhymed iambic pentameter. And then, of course, if you've been around for a minute, you know that he was big time rivals with our boy Thomas Kidd. And that Mm -hmm. is Christopher Marlowe. Christopher Marlowe. That was your very short life. Yeah, so short. But really prolific. Mm-hmm. Like, damn. Yeah, I don't... Christopher Marlowe. I don't like Tamburlaine, and I don't really like Dido, but the rest of his stuff is... They're bangers. Yeah. You know? Yeah, this... Today's play... Yeah. It's pretty fucking insane. And also, I would watch the shit out of Tamburlaine. I just don't like reading it. And I also think sure. he's a dick. So... Yeah. It's, you know, it's one of those plays that's too big for the page. Yeah. Know? I would definitely love to see it staged. Um, yeah 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 for sure it's up right now at the rsc question mark and people are loving it oh awesome it's getting real good reviews oh god i want to go to the rsc why don't we live in england damn i ask myself that a lot and it's not just because of all the theater i'm missing but that's a different podcast for a different day um all right so moving into our summary of the play uh we like to give you a five word unhelpful title Mine is, he kills all the nuns. I mean, spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> uh, mine is an actual Jewish villain, y'all. Mm. Yes. I'm throwing shade at Shylock, who's not a villain. No. Not a villain. Nope. Well, I'm not throwing shade at Shylock. I'm throwing shade at people who think Shylock is a villain. He's not. Right. Yeah, he's definitely not. But Barabbas totally is. Yeah. He's a bit so. of a fucker. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's fucking... Let's get into yeah, it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So the dramatis personae, only the real important ones you need to know. First and foremost, the title character, Barabbas, the Jew of Malta. Then we have Ithamor, his slave. Mm-hmm. And he is also not Christian. Is that right? Ithamor? Yeah. yeah. He's a, I think he's a Turk. Okay. In, which aka uh, a muslim just, it's, yeah synonymous okay. with muslim okay that's what i thought uh and and then we have abigail barabbas's daughter mm-hmm. then we also have bernadine and iacomo who are two friars mm-hmm. and we have the governor of malta and his son don lodewick and other assorted nobility and citizens of malta there are a lot of sort of tertiary characters right, right. tertiary yeah. Tertiary. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, why is this place so goddamn popular, Jess? It's not. It's not even all. Not even a little. Uh, but it fucking should be because it is so much better than The Merchant of Venice. I mean, it's racist AF, just like The Merchant of Venice. Uh, and it's it has an actual Jewish villain, which... So it's it's more problematic than The Merchant of Venice in many ways. Yeah. Um, but it's so much better because... It's kind of like a revenge tragedy. I wouldn't, I don't, I'm not sure that anyone would call this a revenge tragedy. It's a tragedy, but I don't think it's a revenge tragedy, yeah. but it's 
I could see the argument being made for being one. Yeah. And as we all know, revenge tragedies are the best kind of tragedies. So <laughs> there you go. Um, debatable but okay I mean I know you like a good sex I love a good sex tragedy I know but revenge tragedies also have sex often sometimes I guess this one's got a whore that's yeah okay and her pimp and that's fun but I mean I I also I don't know I'm like yes Barabbas is a villain and he's a dick but it's not because he's Jewish he happens to be Jewish Yeah. But he's he's just terrible. He's a Machiavelli, mm-hmm. right? He's just a self-serving person like anybody. Yeah, you well, know. I mean, the, the prologue, which is not included in our summary, is the the characters called the Machiavelli, right. who delivers right. the, the prologue. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's really more yeah. that his like his moral f- and ethical flexibility and homicidal tendencies it's not because he's a jew yeah. well let's uh yeah. let's get into the summary before we just yep. fall down let's a do it hole. there we go it's summary time we are going to summarize the jew of malta for you in a segment that this week we're calling a summary full of poisoned porridge oh my <laughs> which is more descriptive than punny or hilarious only to me but it's the end of the first week of classes, and my brain I like it. come up with anything. I like so. the alliteration it's, of the poisoned porridge. So Poisoned porridge. It's good. All right. We ready? Take it away. Act one. Barabbas begins the play in his counting house. He's stripped of all he has for protesting the governor of Malta's seizure of the wealth of the country's whole Jewish population to pay off the warring Turks, and he is planning his revenge. He first sends his daughter Abigail to pretend to join the nunnery that's been set up in his former home, and they he plans to get his money back. Like He's hidden his money there. Um, once invested there, she's going to retrieve his money and his jewels from beneath the floorboards from all those unsuspecting nuns. Abigail gets into the nunnery. She gets the jewels. She delivers the riches to Barabbas out the window of the house. She's sort of like, ding, 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 sends it down on a rope i don't know um barabbas then acquires his slave ithamore and together they set abigail's two suitors against each other so one don lodewick is the governor's son and the other is his friend uh M- M- matthias mm-hmm. who he we did not put in the anyway because he i didn't put his name in the summary but i'm saying it now anyway okay all right uh so they spare no thought for abigail's feelings she has actual feelings for these men but barabbas and ithamore stir up the the two men's competition w- with each other for her hand um, and they each resolve to best the other no matter what it takes. Mm-hmm. In Act 3, Don Lodewick and his friend Matthias duel and they kill each other. Ithamore callously tells is Abigail about it and she's horrified at her father's machinations. Uh, she runs off to join the nunnery for real and actually convert to Christianity because she's so upset with him. And when Barabbas finds out, he and Ithamore poison a pot of porridge i love how alliterative that is poison a pot of porridge and they send it to the nunnery all of the nuns die along with abigail because of this fucking poisoned porridge and as abigail dies she confesses her crimes and her father's to the friars bernadine and yakimo so in act four bernadine tries to get barabbas to repent Instead, Bernadine, not Bernadine, Barabbas and Ithamore get Bernadine and Yakimo to argue with each other. And then they strangle Bernadine and leave him propped up in a dark alley, leaning on his staff. So then when Yakimo passes by, he's like, oh, there's fucking Bernadine. And he strikes the dead body. And then Barabbas and Ithamore jump out and they're like, Yakimo, what did you do? You killed Bernadine. He's soup's dead now. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, right. I, this It's my favorite. Ithamore then gets drunk and he brags about his escapades to the whore, who then tries to blackmail Ithamore. Act five. To solve the problem of the blackmail, Barabbas poisons the whore and Ithamore both. So he's now poisoned his partner in crime. When he's caught, he drinks a potion that makes him seem dead so that he'll be left alone. He then conspires with the enemy Turks to besiege the city. He gets the Turks to appoint him to a leadership position and then switches sides back to the Maltese Christians. He sets up an elaborate trap for the Turks and the slaves and the soldiers that will have them killed in an explosion of gunpowder. 
And then he sets up a trap for the Turkish prince and his leaders, hoping to boil them alive in a cauldron. Oh my god. At just the right moment, though, the governor of Malta arrives and Barabbas falls into his own trap. He curses the Turks and the Christians as he burns in a cauldron. And the fighting parties resolve to settle their difference peaceably. End of play. I love this play, y'all. Oh my god. I want to see this on stage so bad. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, so let's talk about it. Yeah, um, let's do it. So I'm going to preface this, you know, usually when I talk about the text, I sort of go on at length. Uh, but I am not a Marlowe scholar. And I don't have a good edition of uh, his complete works. I, you know, I'm working out of the, the Bevington Norton anthology this week, as I know you are as well, which has a, a short introduction and a short textual note. And that's that's what I got. So frankly, my explanation for why I'm going to be speaking so so briefly is longer than what I actually have to say about the text. This that's short fine. episode this week. That's fine. Anyway. OK, so the Jew of Malta was probably written in 1589 or 1590-ish, somewhere in there, uh, premiered on the stage in 1592-ish, or at least that is the first recorded performance. It could have, I suppose, been going for many years before then, but the first recorded performance that we have is 1592. Uh, it was entered into the Stationer's Register on May 17th, 1594, but the oldest surviving print copy of the text is from 1633. Ooh. So the prevailing question about the text then is, you know, what was lost, what was changed, what was added between composition and print? Since we're working with a space of, what, 40, maybe 45 years. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so much time. Yeah. That's so much time. That's, I mean, that's the question that I have. Some scholars argue that the 1633 quarto incorporates revision, maybe by Thomas Haywood, but the evidence is just inconclusive and there's no way to sort out what parts are Marlowe and what parts aren't. So I don't know. Huh. It's, it's a fairly standard text. Um, it's uh, the Bevington editors call it authorial. They, they think it's a fine representation of, what Christopher Marlowe probably wrote back in 1589 ish, but you know, it's not this, the, the surviving text of this play, the so so-called authorial text is not a record of performance. It cannot be since yeah. there's such, such a, a large gap of time between print and uh, composition. Right. So, you know, what, what are we missing? And we'll never know. Yeah. And also, does it matter? Good question. I don't know. I mean, now that you've brought it up, it matters to me. Yeah. Because like, sure. it's a thing I, I mean, can't know. I mean, you want to know. know. You want yeah. to know. But yeah. But like, does it, you know, so I went to a, a conference at the Folger some number of years ago now, where the general editor of the ODNB, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, stood up and, and gave a talk about Hamnet Shakespeare. Um, and in that talk said, you know, William Shakespeare himself could stand in front of us and give us an account of his life, particularly those lost years that we have between his last recorded, we know what he was doing in Stratford and when he shows up in London. And it wouldn't change the text, right? So not knowing how how much this text, the Jew of Malta, underwent revision, change, addition, editing, whatever, between when it was when it was printed and when it was first composed does it it doesn't it doesn't change anything frankly and again it can't change anything because we don't know what we don't know right you know we, right. we cannot know but i i posit that someone tomorrow could turn up the lost authorial manuscript of the jew of malta written in christopher marlowe's own hand that was you know reliably found and confirmed by those Marlowe experts, whoever they are. And unless that play bore absolutely no resemblance to the text that we have that we think is the Jew of Malta, I don't think it would change anything unless it were a completely different play. And right. then that would be, you know, a really fascinating uh, conversation to have, but it doesn't matter. Like this play is still 
great. <laughs> it's a great play. It's a great play. So much happens. Barabbas is a dick. The characters are amazing. Yeah. And it's really tight, too, which is the thing I, really I always appreciate about Marlowe, um, is that he, yeah. he really, you know, what we lose... Um, in terms of like flowery language like if you're if you're in the early modern drama scene for the flowery language like go for shakespeare nine times out of ten but sure. you know for the get to the point tell a great story really tight construction good writing marlo's your guy um yeah I well i mean that summary that we just did yeah locked in at under four minutes under yeah. four yeah. minutes yeah there's no subplot mm -hmm. like I mean, shoot why would you need it barabbas is making all right. of his own little plots all over the place yeah such a like, plotter yeah he's, uh, he's, he's a plotter i love this play i love this play so much so much i love this play yeah um you know in terms of production perspective like you have so many staging puzzles to figure mm -hmm. out for this play mm -hmm. i mean the cauldron Come the cauldron oh my god the cauldron boiling a man alive in a cauldron well, like, on stage wow the setting itself like you have to move from inside the city to outside right. the city you have to be able to like siege the city walls right you know you've got to have a place where you can show that you're sort of like building this trap where you're gonna blow up all these people in an explosion yeah. and then yeah. he's got to fall into a cauldron which you know i suppose you do it in the trap sure and you don't see the cauldron. Sure. Like, sure. I mean, and, and, you know, and if you're not in an early modern playhouse, if you're not in a place like the Sam Wanamaker or the Blackfriars, you know, and, mm -hmm. and if you're in just a regular old proscenium or black box, I mean, it offers a huge opportunity to yeah. make a real cauldron. Like, what can you do with that? You know, um, just because, just because they didn't have the stage technology back then that we have now, like you bet your ass, Marlowe and Shakespeare and all those guys would have used it if they had it. You know what I mean? Oh, like there's so much yeah. spectacle written into these <laughs> into these scripts. Like if they had those sound effects and those lighting effects and all that shit that we have now, like they would sure as shit be using it. So Yo. so it's a huge yeah. it's a huge opportunity for modern theater makers now um with a with a play like this. So like oh my god, the cauldron. You've got Barabbas's piles of money in his palatial home, which then gets turned into a nunnery. And then like, what do you do with these, all of these dead nuns? And how do you deal? Do you show it? Like, do you know, what, what, what? And you've got a duel between Matthias and Lodewick. And, you know, so chances for, for some, some stage violence there and lots of death, which is always fun to watch on stage. And, and, you know, but then, you know, you have the, it's, uh, it's just like it's the Merchant of Venice in that it's a political minefield mm -hmm. of, you know, he's Barabbas, the Jew of Malta. And he makes sure Marlowe in his, Marlowe being an atheist, which he for sure was, um, yeah. had, he's very much like the Bill Maher of the early modern playwrights, like, I mean, if you know Bill Maher, Bill Maher doesn't give a shit about anybody's religion. He thinks it's all stupid. He's very disrespectful um, when it comes to people's religion. And I kind of feel like Marlowe has that same kind of vibe. So in his in his writing, you can always tell like he um, he yes, he's using one character of the Jewish faith to disparage all of Christianity. And then he uses another one, Ithamore, who's uh, Muslim to disparage you know the people of the east and and uh of of islam and so like it's politically incorrect all over the place and so like so marlo in that he just he will shit all over everybody's beliefs yeah. um in, in an effort to make you see really i think what what he generally gets at is that people like barabbas it's not it's not barabbas's faith it's the fact that barabbas has no faith at all really like he only believes in looking out for himself and for his money and he will do anything he will turn on anyone including his own family on a dime to protect what he thinks he is owed and what is his um and ultimately that that comes down to you know that's his moral failing it's not that he's 
that he hates on Christians like out loud in this play. And he's so Marlo, I don't know how Marlo got away with it, frankly, how he was able to be so blasphemous with like the master of rebels breathing down everybody's neck, censoring all this well, stuff. Like, I don't, I think the answer is he didn't get away with it. He got stabbed in the eye. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I thought anyway, that texts like this would be, censored and not allowed to go up at all if they were too blessed well, I mean, he sure that but yeah i mean i think because the villain is a jew right they're not they're not taking sure the christian god's name in vain on the stage they're not really you know in in this play the villains aren't christians right the christians are the good guys right so right. it's I think that is okay. And they're disparaged like, and made fun of by the Jewish yeah. guy who's an other yeah. anyway. Yeah, I yeah. guess that, yeah. Very clever. Yeah. Clever, Marlo. Yeah. Clever. I don't think there was any any problem with painting yeah. non-Christians in a poor light. I mean, there certainly wasn't. There are yeah. just, there's a whole subgenre of plays about Muslims and Turks and they're all villains. I mean, you yeah. remember uh, in the City Nightcap. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which I just, I took out. Yeah. Yeah. Much of the offending stuff. But like, that's, that's frankly a question that I, I, I'm, I'm usurping your corner, but no, like, fine. Fine. you've got my juices going. No, it's fine. I, we're, we're doing this play in class next week. Um, so my brain is percolating. Great. Uh, but like, how, how do you, maybe not how, what plays like this that are, now culturally racially uh religiously insensitive to a lot of groups that are problematic on many levels should we do them if so how yeah and also why you know like how how do we present this material in a way that doesn't perpetuate anti-semitism anti-muslim propaganda stuff like how how do we how do we do this play why this play now yeah i honestly i'm not sure you can yeah i i because if you take those things away or if you change them i mean yeah those characters are still dicks but i mean i don't know is it even then the the play anymore i guess right i mean the religion in this play is certainly such a large part right and I, I don't think there's any right. Like you can take out some of the offensive slurs. You can change that language. But yeah. but to take Barabbas's religious affiliation away from him, I think is to fundamentally alter the play. Same with Ithamore, same with the Turks, same with, yeah. you know, frankly, any of it. But again, like as you were saying, religion really isn't at the heart of this play. It's sort of a mitigating factor. But Barabbas isn't doing these things because he's jewish right it's certainly upholding stereotypes that jews are usurious and jews are penny pinchers and jews are greedy right. and wealthy and right. you know but i i'm not sure that beyond those sort of broad stroke jewish stereotypes that barabbas has any hallmarks of judaism about him no i think if you take his stereotype types away from him you just have an mm -hmm. asshole Right. So like, you know, is, I don't know, should we, should we, should we study the play and not perform it? Should we perform it? How do you know how we can't, we can't perform it in a vacuum. We cannot divorce right. this play and its problems from our cultural moment. We cannot do it. That's not, we don't have the power, but how should we approach it? I suppose is, is the question I'm asking and, and why study it? I think it's important to study. I think to sort of understand where we come from and frankly we're never not going to talk about the merchant of venice in relation to this play yeah um and this play came first so we we should understand where the merchant of venice comes from right you know we should be able to put that in context oh i don't know i'm spitballing yeah. what do you know i mean i i and i just wonder it kind of goes back to my musings about marlo and all of his blasphemy like i wonder if the making Barabbas Jewish was a vehicle for Marlowe to criticize Christianity in the way that he wanted and to poke fun at it, you know? Oh, um, smart. So I, 
And I mean, of course, there's no way to know. I can't wake up Christopher Marlowe and ask him, <laughs> you know, but like, but he was so cheeky about stuff like that. I mean, in, in Faustus, like there's taunting of the Pope and stuff. And he does it under the auspices of a guy who sells a soul to the devil, you know, so like I um marlo's marlo's threads through like all of his work it feels like is always like poking at the religious edifice right that his yeah. his cultural moment built up so like but at the same time you know and and that's a thing we can you know we can still make fun of religious institutions these days we can believe it or yep. not <laughs> you know the, lots of churches still do lots of shitty things and we should call them out um but yep. but at the same time if you if you uh, you know try to do this play and and say somehow you you cut out all of the references to Barabbas being Jewish then it's not even like you can't even call it the Jew of Malta anymore it's like the man of Malta uh, like right. uh, and then so then you would still i guess get the satisfaction of watching the spectacle of this play on stage mm -hmm. which again i'm dying to see i want to see a man burn alive in a cauldron on stage right. show me that please so like you know what are what do we privilege do we privilege our our uh need for some good theatrical spectacle um mm -hmm. or do we privilege uh adherence to the original text and i think right. and i think all of that comes down to privilege you know <laughs> are we are we gonna use our privilege to you know, be like, well, this is how the text is. So good, bad or ugly, we're going to show it as is and offend a lot of people. Yeah, or... I'm not sure that's the right tack. I mean, I don't think we should be apologizing for it because right. it is of a different sure. time. Yeah. Um, But I do think we should make careful, considered choices when presenting it. Yeah. And, you know, like there's that whole scene which is the only scene in all of early modern drama that I know of that shows the transaction of purchasing the slave. Mm -hmm. Like Barabbas goes to the slave market right. and he picks out Ithamore. Right. And that yeah. sucks. You know, you, you shouldn't, that shouldn't, yeah. humans are not possessions. And yet we have a ton of movies like 12 Years a Slave and things that yeah. depict the cruelty and brutality of slavery. Yeah. Uh, and I guess, you know, to, to what end? You right. Know. I mean, I think it's it's important to honor these experiences. Like, we shouldn't deny that this happened. We should we should recognize that this was a way of life for a lot of people for a long time, and we should honor that and we should preserve it. And we shouldn't try to sweep it under the rug or deny it happened. We shouldn't try to whitewash history, right? You know, to make it to make our present shiny and happy, and sort of erase the problems of racism and classism right. and you know social bullshit that we have now because so many people want to just pretend it never happened and pretend that we're not still reaping the consequences of those poor choices from many hundreds of years ago but how do you how do you do it in a way that isn't hurtful right yeah because again if you go back straight back to just we're gonna do the jew of malta mm -hmm. as is right you're going to alienate a huge portion of yeah. viewers or potential audience and, and, and why, right? Like for what, for what reason? Yeah. <laughs> you know, why hurt people when you don't have to? Right. Um, because yeah. So I suppose, I don't know. Yeah. All, I, I suppose we're just, we're talking around how do you do this play and, and make good choices about it? I Yeah. I have yeah, no answers. I, I think that's no, I don't I don't either. But you know, also you and I are not preparing for a production of this play. No, thank so. God. <laughs> right. <laughs> um but I, you know, I suppose first of all, if you're out there and you're gonna do this play, don't do it without a dramaturg. Oh my god. Right? Get yourself a dramaturg, please. Get yourself a dramaturg. We don't count. We are not dramaturgs. This podcast no. is great, but we are not a substitute for a proper no. dramaturg. No, we're not. Yeah, no. Get a dramaturg. Do get get a dedicated dramaturg whose yeah. job is is to help you through this play. And then, you know, be sensitive and conscious of of what you're representing on stage. You know, yeah. um 
I we maybe had this conversation in the Othello episode about colorblind casting yeah. and and how that's not actually a thing. It's right. color conscious casting, right? right? Because yeah. you you can't Yeah. Semiotics see color. Semiotics are a thing and you can't yeah. help it. Yeah. So maybe when you're casting this show and you have say uh, a cast of of 12 and six of your actors are people of color and six of your actors are not maybe maybe don't cast all six of those people of color as the slaves and the servants and mm. the whores and the pimps maybe don't do that yeah don't do that because what what message does that then unintentionally send yeah so don't do that don't do that yeah all right well let's let's play a game great Yeah, talk to me about this game, Jess. Here's what we're doing. Is we are going to talk about some early modern playwrights. And we are going to rate them based on how good their hair is. And around the time this episode airs, we will throw those pictures up on the Instagram for you to have a gander at yourself. So that's... uh. At Hurley Burley Shakes on Instagram. At Hurley Burley Shake on no Twitter. Twitter. No, no S on Twitter. So, hey Aubrey, you wanna you wanna talk about Francis Beaumont? We wanna Hell give him yeah. a score. Okay. Frank... He's got some nice curls. Good little Frankie Beaumont over yeah. here. Oh baby. Okay. Right. So he's got just you know these lovely cheekbones, um, accented by. But we're talking about his hair. I know, I know. I'm getting to the hair. <sighs> All right, okay. okay. About how his hair like frames his face. So uh, he's got a longer goatee uh, with a little bit of a handlebar mustache working up top, uh, and then and then a nice, nice rounded, rounded out on his head by what appears to be curly hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but kind of. T- like tight curls close to his head not like yeah. you know wavy bouncy not too much body it seems right deep soulful eyes uh on a scale of <laughs> one to ten what do you think his his hair is for his hair i'm not a fan of like the goatee gone crazy oh so of like the long goatee the beard's one thing but like the long goatee bothers me so i would say okay. a four. Oh, i think he's an eight. Oh, girl <laughs> <laughs> oh girl interesting okay yeah. well so that's, all, right. all right okay uh so what about richard brome who this uh richard brome with the yeah, weird floating he he looks like he's halo. got a bit of a skull cap happening uh, with his hair it looks it looks very flat hair. very greasy um he has what I like to call the evil Knievel goatee happening with like a little bit yep. of a soul patch and then like a yep. big thick bushy thing on his top lip. Um, kind of weird in this engraving. The left half of his hair is a little curly, yeah. wispy, wavy. He's got <laughs> this some body on one side. On one side. And then on the other side, it's like flat and his bangs are plastered to his very round high forehead. Um, yeah, which like to me a, indicates a weird, grease, greasy hair. Yeah, it's like a weird comb over, also. Very, yeah. This is bad hair. It's I not think, good. I think this is a a one. Yeah, agreed. This is not. This is not good. Be better, John Richard Brome. <laughs> uh, John Fletcher though. Fletcher is a hunk. Oh my. Fletcher's God. a hottie with a body. Oh my God. Okay, he's got and ginger. He's yeah, he's a ginger. He's like bursting out of his red leather doublet, which is mm. kind of hot. Um mm. it's like manly barrel chest, I guess. I don't know. Uh he's got a very healthy crop of I don't know, two inch long, looks like he's not got the long fluffy. hair. Yeah, it's like fluffy short hair, fluffy. red hair. Mm-hmm. Uh a neatly trimmed a, beard. Yes, accompanied by a very nicely manscaped beard and mustache. Yeah. And uh, and beautiful peaches and cream skin. I I rate him a nine. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Same. Fletcher. Is, he's mm. he's a hottie. Yeah. Uh. Next up, we got Ben Johnson. 
Oh, Ben Johnson. Yeah. Okay. His, he also has it's like it's nice fluffy hair. Yeah. You know, it he's is. got a thick, it's thick, uh little yeah. receding on the top. We've got Yeah. He's got a widow's peak. A widow's peak, widow's yes. peak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, a nice closely cropped beard, neatly mm. trimmed, a little gray in there. Yeah. Some it's, silver. Yeah. I mean, Johnson doesn't do it for me. We all know I think he's a dick, but yeah. I think his hair is pretty good. I'm gonna give him I'm gonna give him a what did I give what's his ass? Yeah. Eight? I'm gonna give him an eight. I think he's just as really? good as what's his ass. I, yeah, his hair's all right. I think I he's actually know. better than what's his ass. I'm gonna retroactively amend what's his ass. Who was that? Beaumont. Beaumont. <laughs> Beaumont. I'm gonna <laughs> knock Beaumont down to a six and I'm gonna I'm gonna keep Johnson at an eight. Okay. I don't know. His uh his tips look a little dry to me. So it was the 17th century, Aubrey. They didn't have conditioner. Oh, come on. Sure they did. They had oils. Civet. I don't don't think you put civet in your hair, but whatever. I I think that's a cologne. It's very uncleanly flux of a cat. Uh, I I mean, I don't know. I I would say Johnson's like a six. Hair. We're going by hair. Yeah. Hair. I'm trying not to judge the whole face along with the hair. It's very difficult for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's move on Fletcher's to hot. Philip Massinger. <laughs> okay. Uh, Poor, sad Philip Philip Massinger, a.k.a. No-Neck Massinger. Um, he looks like a child. He does. Like a mouse child. Whoever made this picture forgot to give him a neck. Um, yeah. So I have no way of gauging actually how long his hair is or no. whether it actually would have come down to his shoulders as this picture indicates because he's got no damn neck. Uh, he's, uh, it looks like, looks like a, a neatly trimmed beard, though. I think a little high on his cheeks from what mm-hmm. it looks like. I can't tell if that's mm-hmm. shading on the picture or if it's actual scruff. You know, some guys have scruff like right yeah, up I think to their cheekbones. Combination. But I, yeah, I do think the beard goes high. Yeah. He's got a bit of a high beard. Um, he's got a receding hairline kind of flattish on top and curly on the sides. Uh, it looks a little greasy. It looks a little childish to me. <laughs> I feel like I'm the Simon Cowell of the hair judgers right now. <laughs> um, you could do better. I expected oh, so better, better, Philip Massinger. This is crap. Um, but he's not as bad as Brome. No, no. He's, I yeah. would say this is like a five. I was going to say five, too. Yeah. All righty. Yeah, this is uh, five hair. What about Thomas Middleton? Oh, baby. He's kind of Oh my goodness. Well, yeah. He's... And he looks pleased with himself. He does. <laughs> which has no bearing on this game, but uh, no. It's a um he has a very healthy head of wavy shoulder length locks. Looking mm-hmm. kind of a kind of a shag, like a shag that I used to rock back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um he's got a little bit of scruff. And uh I don't know, he's wearing like a Looks like an olive branch crown, like a la right. Caesar in here. So I can't a tell about his wreath. laurel wreath. There we go. I can't really tell much about his um, hairline or his bangs right. if he has any. Right. But I mean, it it looks luscious. It looks um, right. there's like little curls framing his face, and it looks very wavy and very Jon Snow like, which is mm-hmm. uh, my catnip. So I'm gonna say this is a nine. Oh, do you think I was gonna Middleton. go with a seven? Oh, he's a nine. Do you think you think he's better than Fletcher? I called Fletcher a nine too. Oh yeah, like we did. right we up did, there. Didn't we? Yeah. All right. I think he's a seven. <laughs> um, well, what about Christopher Marlowe? Oh my god. Okay. If we're talking purely volume, we, we Marlo, are talking about the hair. Marlo wins the hair. <laughs> ten out of ten, baby. Ten out of ten. I, I, he's he's a shampoo advertisement oh my goodness he has the best hair i mean wow he's got like wow christopher marlowe has amazing hair Though, he is a beautiful yeah. beautiful man yeah. and like he wow. was raking in the dick yeah with that hair yeah and you know what judging by the look in his eyes in this portrait he fucking knows right. it too yeah. like he's got he again he's got a little bit of a soul patch mm-hmm. on his bottom lip he's got a nicely trimmed mustache on top and after that it's like baby face 
Yeah. And this I hair mean, that just like extends. It's so hair. voluminous it's and like magnificent. Like flopped back. It's like better than flock of seagulls. It's like OG flock of seagulls. Yeah, it's real good. Um I still don't think his hair is better than Fletcher or Timid's. Aubrey, the whole game is so that Christopher Marlowe can win the hair game. <laughs> I just need you to play by my rules. Okay. Fine. 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 Do you not Marlo see where it says in the outline in all caps because Marlo <laughs> wins every time, baby? Okay. Yes, I saw that. I thought that was open for discussion. No, <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not. Okay. I'm a tyrant. <laughs> but it's your game. Fine. We'll play it the way you want. All right. You know, here's what we're going to do. It's going to put all 10. of these images on our Instagram yep. and maybe on the Twitter as well. And yep. we will let the listeners draw their own conclusions about who's yes. got good hair and who doesn't. You do need to look so. at that. You notice we didn't even bring up Shakespeare in this. Oh, we didn't. We were going to, but we didn't. We didn't. Shakespeare. Well, we all know what she, well. He, I mean, he was balding. His hair is, yeah. Um, the Chandos portrait is good hair. The, it is. The Drauschau is not. It's, the it's, engraving is yeah, not. Yeah. The portrait is fine. The engraving is bad. The bust is somewhere yeah. in between. Yeah. It's, yeah. Shakespeare so. had a bit of the, um, like, the monk problem going on. Like, it's yeah. very flat around, like, the top of his head. And then lots of waves and curls where he can get it. Yeah. You know, right. kind of Fabio-ish hair, but... It's, more, it's like an extreme mullet. Mm-hmm. He was also much older, you know, by the time. True. By the time that picture was know, taken. Yeah. This yeah. taken. Oh, by, by the time the picture was taken. <laughs> yes. In 16 whatever. I stand by it. I stand by it. Okay. I love you. Let's gossip. Yep. Let's. Let's. It's time. Oh, my God. <laughs> um. So it's it's a light gossip week as it has been for the last couple of weeks. It's the end of the summer. There's not a whole lot going on. Uh, but we do want to just put this on your radar. Shakespeare Dallas, if you are in Tejas, uh, is getting ready for their first ever indoor play. Oh. They're going to do Hamlet in their new indoor space, opening January 11th. Uh, shout out to friend of the pod, Kendra Emmett Goldwasser. for Kendra! Yeah. Yeah, Kendra and I FaceTimed the other night. Um, and she's, uh, ASMing this, I think, or no, oh, right uh, not, not ASMing the other one, a, a Dean. Oh, cool. The other one that starts with a, she's the assistant director on, mm. on this show. Uh, she's preparing the text and, uh, January 11th, they open in Dallas. Uh, they're usually, you know, a summer outdoor festival, but now they're going to be indoors. So frankly, January in Texas is a time I wouldn't mind being indoors. Yeah. Hey, good for you, Shakespeare Dallas. Yeah. Good job. Also, congratulations. Breaking out of the, the summer routine. So. Yeah. That's exciting. That's very yeah. exciting. Yeah, um, also exciting if you're waiting around for the American Shakespeare Center touring troupe to come to your town. Uh, they're about to. They set out. Uh, it's the Hand of Time tour this uh, this year every tour gets every tour year gets a new name this year it's the hand of time tour because the season is the winter's tale the comedy of errors and first ever for the asc a greek tragedy antigone which is so fucking good it's y'all. very good it's very very and the costumes are gorgeous <gasps> The whole so show great. is gorgeous. It's, it is. That, it's a gift. It is. Go see, if they are near you, go see. I mean, go see all yeah. of the shows. Presumably, they're yeah. all, I've only seen Antigone. They're beautiful. Antigone and is stunning. What's so fun is that all three of these shows are so different. I mean, mm. so different. Uh, so if you want to see some really versatile actors do three very disparate shows, um, find them. They're, they're coming around. You can catch them. Uh, you can follow them on a map that we have on the AmericanShakespeareCenter.com touring website. Uh, so they're about to set off. Um, they're doing some last minute training. They just took over the playhouse and did their previews. They're going to leave on their first leg of the tour mid September. So in about 10 days. Yeah. 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 Not frankly too long after this episode yeah. airs. Yeah. So. And I just had the pleasure of seeing Comedy Bears uh, in their preview last night. And it was so, so fun. So very fun. Is all I can yeah. say. This is just a silly. It's a silly play, <laughs> uh, and they are very silly in it. And, and then they go and like turn around and do Antigone. Like it's nuts. 
um, what they what they're able to do. So look out for that. Um, so I thought we might wrap up this gossip sesh with uh, checking in with with our good pal Aubrey, because I feel like we often talk about my work on, true. on the show, but it's been a, a minute since we've heard about what you're doing. And I know you're doing some stuff. So what what you working on? I'm, I'm doing some stuff. Well, I've been helping um, to prepare the materials that our touring troupe is going to take on the road. Uh, because not only do they tour shows, they teach while they're on the road. They do workshops and such. And I'm responsible, partially responsible for training them in, in that material. Um, so I've been busting my ass uh, updating the material for them this week, which is the boring part of my job. Oh, well, it's not boring, really. Uh, it's just boring to talk about on a podcast. Sure. Um, I've been uh, in rehearsals for a play. I'm in a production at the oak grove theater here in just outside of stanton uh of a play by the one the only dr paul menzer uh and it's called the brats of clarence which is one of his early works uh it is his earliest work isn't it yeah i think so or shakespeare on ice did that come first i don't remember i don't know we weren't around yeah this is well before my time uh here but uh, the brats of clarence is a spoofy silly sequel to Richard III and it centers kind of around um guess who the children of Clarence who we see in one scene in Richard III uh crying over their dad being dead you know with their grandma and their mom and their aunt uh you know with all the crying women you see those kids in the the wailing women part 2 scene and then you never hear from them again um and I think Richard does refer to them once as the Brides of Clarence, maybe. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a play very loosely based around that. It's full of puns and poop jokes and fart jokes. And uh, I play several characters. I play King James IV, so I get to have a ridiculous Scottish accent, which is loads of fun for me. <laughs> um, it's like unintelligible, which is part of the joke. It's very funny. Um, I love it already. Yeah, and I get to play uh, sort of the jailer character named Cleave Gag, um, who, in my interpretation, is a bit of a freak. So I get to do some clowning, and that makes me super happy. I've actually done a lot of clowning this whole summer, which makes me very, very happy. So so yeah, that uh, it's it's a limited run. It's two nights only, September 14th and 15th. All of the ticket proceeds um, are by donation and they go towards the New Directions Women's Center, which is a center to help battered women get out of their situation That's um, fantastic. in the Augusta County here in the Shenandoah Valley. So, yeah, it's a great cause. It's a fun play with a really fun group of people out at Oak Grove, which is this tiny little stage in bumfuck nowhere in an oak grove, as it's the name would suggest. It's a beautiful space. It is. It is. Like right behind yeah. it is a you know it's very pastoral uh so so that's fun um not as fun if you're a mosquito magnet like me but other than that you know it's fun for everybody else i'm sure so that's what i've been working on i've been i'm doing a show and we just did some teacher seminars and just been just been busting my ass been working hard it's been fun fantastic yeah well should we should we do some dicks yeah girl (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, yes, <laughs> maybe. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yes. So uh, it's Dick take, Brackett take time. Yes. Last week, uh, we put up Claudius versus Antiochus as the first round of our uh, Dick Brackett elimination, and then in round two of last week, we put Goneril and Regan against uh, Brachiano and Flaminio from The White Devil. The boys, the White Devil boys. And Antiochus won this week's polls I by a sh- landslide. Shocked by both of those, frankly. Shocked. Yeah. Um, me too. When I when I put Claudius and Antiochus on my on my Twitter, yeah. Um, that one ended in a dead heat. So it was the the hurly burly one that tipped the scales. Yeah. Um I shocked. Shocked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was because I was worried, you know, with characters that are less known, even in yeah. the Shakespeare canon, that people yeah. would just vote for who they knew. Exactly. Um, but y'all came through and exceeded our expectations. Yeah. 
Um, our, our listeners know what's up. Yeah. So it, Antiochus and uh, the White Devil Boys are advancing to the next round of our dick mm-hmm. bracket elimination, mm-hmm. leaving Claudius and the sisters with blisters, Goneril and Regan, <laughs> in the dust. Yeah. Uh, y'all bitches ain't shit apparently compared to these two (laughs) yeah so this week's matchups are guess who barabbas haha the jew of malta um i think more aptly called the asshole of malta uh, versus leontes of the winter's tale this one's so hard for me yeah yeah man so hard because you know how i feel about leontes yeah I think Leontes might be the biggest dick in in all of Shakespeare. He's not, in fact, the character I hate the most in the in the entire canon. That's Paulina, uh, yeah. seconded or followed very closely by Cleopatra. But I think I think he might be the biggest dick. But wow, Barabbas. Well, you know, poisons yeah. the entire nunnery just to get to his daughter, and then plots to have some people burned in a damn cauldron. Yeah, I mean the thing. Okay, here's the divider for me between Barabbas and Leontes, though, is that Leontes repents whether mm-hmm. you decide to forgive him or not. You know, yeah. the, I mean that's up to you. But like Leontes, you know, sees the error of his ways eventually and is truly penitent. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, Barabbas. Barabbas just doesn't quit the whole no. damn time. He's got no. He's literally whatsoever. boiling alive and cursing. Everyone. Yeah, yeah. Like he is stubborn. He is a stubborn motherfucker who will not even let it go while he's dying. Um, yeah. and and he kills his own daughter. He kills his daughter's suitors. Really, kind of. I I'm not really sure why, <laughs> other than like he was trying to play the governor's son. Uh, for other reasons and like used his daughter's other suitor against him like mm-hmm. so, and like he just hurt his daughter for no reason and then he killed all mm-hmm. those nuns and then, I mean mm-hmm. it just and he keeps a slave and then he kills that slave and he kills the whore I mean he's just he's a freight train man he's a freight train of evil you know when we put this matchup together Barabbas versus Leontes I thought they were really evenly matched and everything you've said in the last minute and a half I'm like Leontes is not gonna win this. He's this is no competition, no. like none. Barabbas clearly takes it. Well, and I thought so too. And then we talked more about this play, and Barabbas is just a heaping pile of shit. Uh, yeah, he's, he's got shitty. no remorse, none. You know, I don't know. I I feel like yeah, this one's. I feel like this one's gonna be a landslide. Well. I'll be interested to see what happens. Yeah, we'll see. Um, our other matchup is Edmund from King Lear versus Don John from Much Ado About Nothing. Uh, Aubrey, can you give us a refresher of Edmund and why he's a dick? Yeah, Edmund. <laughs> um, Edmund is your favorite bad boy from King Lear uh, who is a bastard. He is Gloucester's bastard son. Uh, he um he tries to have his brother killed his brother who is the acknowledged natural son or well they're both natural son but whatever um he's Gloucester's acknowledged son Edgar he tries to get Edgar killed uh through subterfuge it doesn't work he then um you know gets involved with Goneril and Regan for reasons uh, turns them uh, against one another he just he causes all kinds of chaos all through the play he gets some people killed um. And he's a dick about it. And then he dies too. Uh, Don John does not mm-hmm. die. Mm-mm. But he uh, he's an agent of chaos. He is yeah. the reason for all of the ado yeah. in this play. Um, you know, he is just mad that the people around him are happy. And so decides to muck some shit up and, you know, stages the whole situation uh, where they... Claudio and uh, Don Pedro think that they are seeing hero fucking the guy, Baraccio. Baraccio? Mm-hmm. Yes, Baraccio. Um, out, you know, out of her window the night before her wedding. Yeah. Um, and it, it does not go well yeah. for them. Uh, and, you know, he, he escalates to that uh, level of, of chaos because he initially just tries to um, make Claudio think that Don Pedro is wooing hero for himself, not for Claudio. Uh, And when that confusion is quickly cleared up, 
he he escalates. Um, he just doesn't want anybody to be happy and doesn't nope. care who gets in the way. Because he's not. So, so Yeah, he's not. Yeah. He's, he's another bastard uh, in the literal and figurative sense. Yes. So we have so. our very own Battle of the Bastards this week. I know. Um, I know. They are nowhere near as sexy as Jon Snow or Ramsay Bolton. Um, I don't know who either of those people are. Oh my god, it's Game of Thrones! Okay. I don't watch it. It's scary. Uh, so it's <laughs> it's time for our first corrections of uh, oh. season two. <laughs> oh. So we say a lot of things on this podcast, and sometimes we misspeak or misinterpret information or just plain get things wrong, and usually it's me. <laughs> so it only <laughs> seems right to issue corrections as necessary. Uh, many many moons ago in our Spanish tragedy episode back in April, I said that Musidorus was a boring play about war with a bear in it. And I was wrong. Okay. I had conflated Musidorus, which is a play with a bear that is great. Uh, conflated that with Locrine, a play about war that is less great. Um, I read both of them in the same week in March and they had blended together in my head. And that's what it is. Also shout out to Courtney for pointing out that the woman in our dick bracket from Arden of Faversham is called Alice, not Anne. Ah. Sorry. That is 100% on me. I didn't double check the text because I was confident. And so lesson learned, always double check. Uh, so Alice Arden mm. will be going up against Margaret of Anjou. Oh my. Yeah. Not, not Anne Arden, who is not a person. That's what we got. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll forgive you this time, I Thanks. guess. Just. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> All right. And thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. Tune in next week for King John 101. King John 101. Whamlet out. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. Email us at holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram or hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. I googled, do you have Malta quotes? And here's what I found on Schmoop under perseverance quotes, particularly perseverance quotes. Here it is. Are you ready? Good Barabbas. Be patient. I mean, that's a reach. Schmoop.com. That's a reach. Just saying. Put the pedal to the metal, there's dust in my eyes Burning up my rubber, going nine to five I don't get to where I'm going, I think I might die I'm going to Las Vegas to get me a wife The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show was produced entirely by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet with no help from anyone because we're poor. To read more about us or for other podcast-adjacent materials, visit our website at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Okay, we did have help from one guy, Jonathan Shu, who composed the music you're enjoying right now. For more information on him, go to jonathanshu.com or check out his albums on iTunes. And hey, if we name-checked you or someone you know during today's podcast, it's because you inspire us. So keep doing what you do best. Gonna marry me, the first woman I see. She's gonna love and do right by me. Have a kid, have some family. Gonna marry me, the first woman I see. Can you spell it one more time? Yeah, meiosis. M-E-I-O-S-I-S. -I -I meiosis. You're looking it up, aren't you? I absolutely am. I You're right. I swear You're totally right. to fucking God.